0: 2009, October 12th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 13, What is Life? We'll get going. So the first part, this this section that we're in right now is discussing uh, the nature of life on Earth. And so the first part, last week, was a little subsection we'll call Part 1, The Cradle of Life. The idea was we talked about the Earth, its surface, its atmosphere, some of the history of both the surface and the atmosphere. The second part, which will be the question of the nature of life, is a subtitle for this section of Unit unit 3, is now trying to get at the question of what is the nature of life on Earth. Here, I have a somewhat difficult problem ahead of me, because I have to review essentially all of biology and biochemistry in the next five days. That's clearly going to be seriously cherry-picking this subject, not because I'm thinking there are things that are not important, but because I'm going to emphasize those pieces that give us the necessary insights for the central question of this class of is there life on other worlds. So today's lecture is going to be kicking off a week in which, I will be perfectly honest with you, I feel a little bit uncomfortable at times because it is biology. There's going to be almost no astronomy in this week. I know enough biology, I think, to get me in trouble, um, certainly enough to get you all in trouble, so we're going to be going through this a little bit together. It's been a long time since I took a biology class, so the last couple years... I've been bringing myself up to speed on this, at least on the basics that are important to us today. So if any of you are, in fact, biology majors, you will consider this to be biology very light. Today's lecture is going to concentrate on the question of coming up with a biological definition of life. This is not easy. In fact, we're going to see that, in fact, there is no consistent or well-agreed-upon biological definition of what constitutes life versus not life. But there are basically six descriptive characteristics that do inform us as to how people think about, the how biologists think about this problem. These six characteristics that are common to all living organisms on the Earth. And remember, when we're talking about life here, we mean life on Earth because it's the only forms of life we currently know. And we think that some of these are what we should be looking for when we're looking for life on other worlds. So these six properties are that all life forms have order or structure to them, that they have the ability to reproduce, that they have the ability to grow and develop, that they have the ability to utilize energy derived from their environments, that they have the ability to respond to their environments or changes in their environments, and finally, they have the ability to evolve, change their structure over many generations to adapt to their environments. These are the six basic (coughs) characteristics of life. So today we're going to walk through each of these in turn, giving examples, and at the end, try to bring this all together into what we think is at least a working definition of life that may not satisfy all possibilities, certainly within the very vast fields of biology, biochemistry, and molecular genetics, but may in fact suffice to help us at least know how to begin to frame the problem of, if I'm looking for life on other worlds, what does it look like? Now... The first question comes down to a really basic thing, an everyday thing. How do I distinguish between things that are living and non-living? So here we have a couple of of, uh, examples. Um, On the upper left-hand corner, this is Gus, one of my two cats. Um, Sometimes I think he's not among the living, but he certainly is a living creature. Um, And down on the lower right is the Buckeye Bullet, which just recently uh, broke the world land speed record uh, for this particular class of experimental automobile. Now, cats and cars, if you will, have a lot of similarities. They both use energy in order to make themselves work. Uh, They spend a lot of time doing nothing and occasionally having brief bursts of doing a great deal. Uh, They both have structure. Um, They both have um, the, the ability to use energy. And they both can grow and develop. They change over the course of their lifetimes. But no one would argue that a cat and a car are, in fact, the same thing. A cat is is almost self-evidently living, and the car most certainly is a machine. It is basically a non-living hunk of of machinery. But those distinctions like between a cat and a car are obvious. It's not always obvious when dealing with life that something is necessarily living or non-living. For example, among biologists working now today, there is a serious argument over whether viruses, represented up on the right by an electron micrograph of the Ebola virus, is a form of life on the same par as the E. coli bacteria here form on the right. In fact, there are a significant number of biologists who would claim that viruses land in this kind of odd nether zone between life and non-life. They wouldn't claim that it's completely non-living. It's certainly not inanimate in that regard. But it's actually substantially different enough, the operation of viruses biochemically, from the operation of even the simplest microorganisms on Earth, bacteria, to make one wonder, how you define life defines where it comes in this boundary. It's not going to be a hard line, living on the left, non-living on the right. It's going to have a fuzzy boundary. And we have to ask, where does that fuzzy boundary live? Is this fuzzy boundary represent a transition from life to non-life or something else? It's a question we're going to address when we look for life elsewhere. Now that could take the easy way out. Okay, we could just decide to define life in the same way that Justice Potter Stewart defined pornography. Justice Potter Stewart was an associate uh, justice in the Supre- United States Supreme Court, and in 1964, he gave a, a, a accompanying remarks in a case called Jacobellis versus Ohio. And the comments are actually one of the most famous utterances in all of the Supreme Court. It says in full, I shall not today attempt further to define what kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description. The unword phrase word was he was talking about a movie that was accused of being hardcore pornography. And perhaps I could never succeed in intelligently doing so. But I know it when I see it. And the motion picture involved in this case is not that. It's that that phrase, often taken out of context, that I will know it when I see it, is often a working definition of life. I can't really get down and define it, but you can pretty much tell not living from living, or can you? Well, this is obviously a sort of a practical way of defining life. You will know it when you see it, but it's not going to serve us very well if we're trying to guess, well, what should I be looking for? It's only a definition that serves you after you've actually found something. So we need to come up with a much more consistent way of defining life or setting up some criteria that might at least be able to help us suss out the question of where does the boundary go between living and non-living. So going back to some of the initial comments from today's lecture, biologists have defined six basic properties that are shared by all life forms that we see on earth, all organisms, that any biologist would agree is a living organism will have one of these six properties. And again, they are order and structure, reproduction, growth and development, energy utilization, response to environment, and evolutionary adaptation. Now it's important to understand an important distinction that we're going to draw here as we go through all of these is a a distinction between a necessary and a sufficient condition. For example, a couple weeks ago we were talking about the distribution of elements, chemical elements throughout the universe. We commented that the elements carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, the primary elements responsible for life, appear to be common and abundant no matter where we look in the universe. We know that certainly for life on Earth, carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen are in fact the principal chemical constituents. They are necessary for life on Earth. Or rather, more to the point, they are also sufficient for life to form elsewhere. But to say, because these elements are found everywhere, life must therefore be abundant is a fallacy. And it's a fallacy because I found sufficient condition, I found the basic raw materials, but just because I have carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen does not mean they organize themselves of necessity into a living creature. And so the same is going to be true when we look at these six ideas here. We have to be very careful of falling into the fallacy That just because we're drawing our primary examples from living systems that we mistake sufficient and necessary conditions. So many of these conditions are going to turn out to be necessary, but some of them are going to turn out to be merely sufficient. I can find non-living analogs of many of these, so we'll keep our eyes open for that as we go through these six basic characteristics. The first of these characteristics is, again, kind of an obvious one. It's order. Order is the property that living organisms have an overarching structure to organize the components that make up their their organism. There is, if you will, a clear inside and a clear outside to a cell. In fact, it's very convenient if life is basically contained in a bag or within a structure of some kind because you don't want the parts just kind of floating around the environment. So you want a clear distinction between inside and outside. You also want a level of organization because cells have certain biochemical functions. Perhaps those biochemical functions need to be localized in order to work effectively. They can't just sort of be grooving around anywhere within the structure of the cell. So the idea is that living systems immediately show themselves by having always a high degree of order or structure. And it varies from, you know, for example, these little microscopic organisms here that have a very clear spiral structure inside. That structure isn't an accident. It's not a matter of aesthetics that actually that structure has a lot to do with how that particular uh, cell, in this particular case, a particular parasite, functions. And different cells and different organisms will have different structures that are consistent with their cellular function. But order is a good example of a necessary but not a sufficient condition to be living. Because in fact, ordered structures abound in in the inanimate world as well. On the right, I show a photograph of a highly ordered structure, a snowflake. The ordering of this structure represents the low-level ordering of molecules of ice that are forming into a crystalline form. It has extreme amounts of order. There's a very clear distinction between inside the crystal and outside the crystal. But nobody would pretend that the snowflake is living. And the same is true even of artificial things like a, you know, that people build. We build things with structure consistent with their function. So while order is certainly a signpost of life and one of the areas in which life going to non-life might be seen as the ordering of components that ultimately become a part of a living organism, it's only a necessary but not sufficient condition. I can find plenty of non-living counterexamples. Another characteristic that we think life has is the ability of living organisms to make a copy of itself. Okay, and I've given an example here on the left, this is a sea urchin egg which is in the process of basically making, it's just been fertilized, and now is in the process of making a sea urchin. So pieces of genetic material from from two parent sea urchins are slowly going through the process of cell division, mitosis, and development to eventually become, at some point, a full-fledged sea urchin. There are two different examples of the ways in which living creatures are capable of reproducing on the earth. One of those is asexual reproduction. For example, cells simply divide, like bacteria, or they can break off a bud, in which they basically make a copy of their complete genetic package and stuff it into a bag and and either dump it over the side, or this creature basically makes a complete copy of its genetic package and splits itself and all of its structures in half. And two separate entities with identical genetics begin to go through their development. Now there may be small mistakes or errors that creep into the genetic information during that splitting off, and so over time you do get changes in genetic content, but it has to do with basically an asexual division. You're passing on information, you're passing on heredity and making a copy of yourself through the cellular machinery. The other method of reproduction is sexual reproduction, in which there are two parents, each of whom contribute half of the genetic material, which together make up a whole for a new offspring. So these certainly are a necessary condition for life, the ability to reproduce itself. But we can also begin to see that there are in fact non-living entities, non-living phenomena, which can in fact show signs of reproduction. These turn out to be, for example, the interestingly named computer virus. These are actually small snippets of computer code that are, in a very crude way, capable of making copies of themselves on thousands upon thousands of computers. Are they reproducing in the same sense as biology? Not really, but it is probably the first real example that people have come up with of a non-living, reproducing, almost autonomous system. It's obviously using computer code and not biochemistry, but it has, has some interesting analogies. And In fact, the rise of computer viruses and semi-autonomous computer programs and vast computer networks have given some people some pause who think about biology, wondering, maybe there are non-living reproductive systems. Now this question of reproduction seems like an obvious one for life, but it turns out to be a rather sticky one. So for example, at the borderline between living and non-living are two particular biological entities, mostly have come to our attention because of their role in pathology, their role in transmitting diseases, and these are viruses and prions. These represent borderline cases in biology where biologists are split on whether these should be defined as living, quasi living or non-living entities. Viruses, for example, by the definition of reproduction for living organisms, cannot reproduce by themselves. A virus cannot simply fission into two viruses. It wouldn't be a virus at that point. Viruses don't contain DNA, they contain RNA, as we'll see in, a, in later lectures. The way a virus replicates is by infecting a living cell which does have the full cellular machinery of reproduction and hijacking that machinery for its own uses. That's the way, for example, that the Ebola virus works or any other virus. It goes in, gloms onto a cell, dumps its load of NRA and some, uh, of, of RNA and some chemicals and basically takes over the cell's reproductive chemical machinery that it doesn't have itself. It shows all those amazing signs of evolutionary adaptation to a very unusual niche, but it does not possess the ability to reproduce itself. So it falls in this kind of funny nether zone between able to reproduce and not. The other areas where you get this sort of funny sort of sort of living non-life are prions. Prions are basically infectious proteins. There are a protein, we'll learn more about proteins later, that are folded in an abnormal way that when they get into an organism cause damage. Now, we don't know yet know how prions are... are prions are responsible, for example, for uh, bovine um, spongiform encephalitis or what's often referred to as mad cow disease. They're not viruses, they're not bacteria. We're not sure how they work, but the current idea is, in fact, they, they don't replicate by making copies of themselves they essentially replicate by going into a cell and causing normal proteins to fold abnormally and turning them into prions. It's not the way we usually think about reproduction, so it falls how do we how do we classify that? Are prions the most primitive possible living thing showing some signs of what the earliest forms of life might have been like or just plain biochemically weird? Are they almost like chemical poisons entering a system, like poisoning a system by giving someone heavy metal poisoning or something? where you go in and screw up their chemistry. You wouldn't accuse lead atoms or heavy metal atoms entering a body as being living, even though they cause dis-ease in the old traditional sense of that word. So while reproduction is an obvious trait, It has some interesting implications for the boundaries between life and non-life, and may have some clues to us as to what the first forms of life may have looked like on this planet, and perhaps give us some ideas of what the first forms of life or other forms of near life may look like or to be looked for on other worlds. The third property that life possesses is the ability to grow and develop by basically either adding mass to itself or by adding capabilities through the course of development. Again, a self-evident property. Here we have a a Nile alligator cracking free of its shell. This juvenile alligator, of course, is going to continue to grow, get very big and very, very hungry. It's going to grow capabilities. It's going to learn. It's going to develop and mature and eventually be a full-fledged, if it survives, adult Nile crocodile. So that's an example of all forms of life. You do not look today like you look like as a baby. You have capabilities or organs developed over the course of maturation. You grew in size, your changes in bone structure, muscle structure, and so forth. And you do not look the same as you will look, in fact, 10, 15 years from now. Trust me, you really won't look the same 10, 20 years from now. All because of the process of growth and development. But again... Growth and development, while an obvious hallmark of life, is also a necessary but not sufficient condition for life. And I give an example on the right of a growing system that is adding mass and, and changing its configuration over time stalactites and stalagmites building up in a cave. I could give another example from astronomy. I must as well mention astronomy at least once this week. Stars develop over the course of their existence. They change their internal configuration as they burn different forms of nuclear fuel to provide their energy. They change their configuration in response to changes in internal pressures and temperatures. They show signs of growth and development. In fact, astronomers often speak of the lives of stars, the birth of stars, their growth and development and death. We draw these analogies from life because we see that analogy of development within how the physical process that is a star unfolds in the course of the life of a single individual. Now that's an important point here. When I refer to growth and development, I'm referring to growth and development of an individual organism, how it itself changes over time. This is going to be very different from the idea coming up here between changes in the populations of organisms over long periods of time spanning multiple generations. Different concept. So, growth and development, again, important signpost of life, but a necessary, if not sufficient, condition. Now, we're starting to get into some of the inter- more interesting stuff. We've defined basically how life behaves. Now, we're going to define a characteristic of life that begins to set it apart in many important ways. And we're going to talk in more detail about these methods of energy utilization when we talk about the details of cells in the next couple days. All living organisms of all kinds that we've encountered utilize energy obtained from their environment. That utilization of energy goes by the general name of metabolism. Living organisms have a metabolism. They harvest energy from their surroundings. They either harvest sunlight or maybe they harvest chemical energy from their environment. Heavy metals, sulfur, iron compounds, things like that, and a bit of heat, say, in in the environs of a hot hydrothermal vent under the sea, provide... the chemical energy for a cell to basically do its biochemical thing, whereas up on the ground we might get energy from sunlight. Basically, they use energy for almost everything that a cell does requires some energy. You need energy to grow. You need energy to reproduce. If you react to your environment, you have to have energy to expend to make that reaction. If you're going to develop and change your function and form over the course of your life, you're going to expend energy doing that. Energy basically sort of is attempting to counteract the process of decay. Our bodies are self-repairing at some fundamental level. Otherwise, if we just started up like a little wind-up toy, we would eventually wind down and fall over dead. But in fact, our bodies are very, very complex, biochemical, self-repairing biochemical machines, but up to a limit. Clearly, the process of decay and decline within the, the system of our bodies, which we call aging, eventually catches up with us. So... The utilization of energy and the ways in which these organisms utilize energy forms a lot of of the necessary um, intuition we need to build up about life. If I'm going to be looking for living systems, I need to be looking in places where there are sufficient sources of energy, chemical or sunlight, to be able to power metabolism. If you rob a living organism of its sources of energy, you lock, it in a, you lock a plant, which is sit there photosynthesizing away in the sunlight, lock it into a dark box and keep it away from any sources of energy, it will die. So we know that every living organism needs a source of energy, It needs a way to utilize energy. And how it does that gives us some clues as to what we should be looking for. Now we get into the much more difficult ones. Living organisms also can sense and react to their environments. They can respond to changes in temperature. They can respond to changes in sunlight. They can respond to changes in the chemical environment. For example, microbes living in water might actually begin to respond if the water begins to change its salinity, for example. The amount of salt content or maybe the presence or absence of acids in the water might cause those creatures to respond in some way. There are lots of ways that a a living organism can respond. The most common one, the one that kind of gets in our face, is that they move, right? You startle a jackrabbit, it runs away. You change the acid content in water and bacteria which are mobile, which do not like being in high acid, migrate away from the high acid concentrations to the low acid concentrations in the pond. When the weather gets too cold, fish go to the bottom of the pool to sink for the winter time, things like that. So they're able to sense the environment, sense changes in in physical properties of their environment and then respond to them in some way. Now again, we're dealing with a necessary but not sufficient condition for life. For example, an example of a uh, piece of machinery which can respond to its environment in a semi-autonomous way is a thermostat. A thermostat senses changes in the air temperature and is hooked up through electrical circuits to either turn the heater on or turn the cooler off or work in some way to respond to its environment. We can build up so-called feedback circuits, which can respond to the environment in various ways, light sensors that turn lamps on at night. All of those are showing response to change in environment, but no one would believe that a, or would even claim that a thermostat or a light sensor on a lamppost is a living entity. So this idea of, of stimulus and response is a fairly important one. Sometimes the stimulus and response can be very, very subtle. Stimulus to, or response to environment cannot always be something as obvious as something running away or moving from one way to another. Take, for example, I, I grew up in the Mojave Desert, so I'm fairly acquainted with this particular creature here on the, on the uh, left here is a jackrabbit. Jackrabbits have these gigantic ears. Okay, why do they have big ears? Well, it's, it's not to make them hear better. That doesn't seem to be any any good. What what, what do they do this for? Well, they live in a desert environment. It's very, very hot in the desert. And when the, the animal gets excited, the ears are full of blood vessels. And those blood vessels dilate with blood, and they basically form radiators. So the giant ears of a jackrabbit are not to help it hear better, but to help it basically thermoregulate itself. They are, I didn't choose this by accident, they are, if you will, part of the thermostat in the organism. We respond to our environment, right? This room is really hot. If it got any hotter, what would we start doing? Well, without having to think about it, we would start sweating. We would start feeling the temperature rise in our face as basically more blood is rushed to the surface to try to radiate more heat away. Our head tries to keep its temperature calm. We are, without thinking of it, responding to our environment. And finally, the sixth property and this turns out to be one of the most important in defining whether something is living or not, is that living organisms evolve over successive generations in order to adapt to their environments. It is not enough that a creature simply respond to its environment immediately. Long-term changes in that environment can cause changes in the population that can de-adapt a species or de-adapt animals to that environment. You suddenly have ponds that freeze over and can no longer support certain forms of life but other forms of life may move into those places as a consequence, or life forms that the changes are slow enough may in fact adapt over time. Adaptations are basically any change in an organism that make it better suited to its environment. Right? Whatever the evolutionary adaptations are in jackrabbits made it more suited to a desert environment rather than to a, a cool woodland environment. But there are some important things to remember. Up to this point, we've been talking about the properties of individual organisms, single entities. When we start talking about adaptations to adapt to environment, we're now not talking about changes in an individual organism, we're talking about changes in populations, not individuals. And these changes occur and accumulate over many, many generations. And that's the key to understanding the so-called evolutionary adaptation. Most of these adaptations, in fact, are quite subtle. They don't make any outward obvious changes in the creature. In fact, you'd have to really look hard to see them. You have to look very hard to see them sometimes. Other times, they can accumulate if the the adaptation stresses are big enough and the animal is able to, or organism, I should say, is able to adequately respond over many generations. They can actually make such significant alterations that essentially an entirely new species of organism arises. Now it's a lot harder to see at the level of big animals, you know, uh, people, large animals, large plants, because they go through a very slow number of generations in a human lifetime. Most of the tremendous diversity of adaptation occurs at the microscopic level because that in fact is most of the forms in life cannot be seen without a microscope, and they go through many, many, many thousands of generations in a few years sometimes. So we're going to see this a lot, in fact we observe it constantly at the microscopic level. To see it at the macroscopic level, at the scale of the very big, we have to start dipping into the fossil record to get out over many thousands and even millions of years to be able to see these kinds of significant changes. These adaptations have to occur over very long numbers of times because they occur over many, many generations. These are slow, gradual changes. So an example of this, and again it's taken from a figure coming out of your textbook here, is the pygmy seahorse. The pygmy seahorse lives in an environment where the corals have a certain shape and the the slow adaptations over time have built up the ability of the seahorse to camouflage itself from any predators that might like to eat it by starting to make itself look like the coral. Pygmy seahorses that did not look like their coral stand out from their coral and became lunch before they could make other seahorses is part of the idea. Now, of course, this is opening up a big can of worms. This is not just a small topic in biology. This is probably the most revolutionary idea in biology in its entire history, is the recognition of the steady evolution of of living organisms. It's obviously a very complicated topic. I'm not even going to attempt to review it in detail, but I want to draw from it those basic lessons that are going to be of use to us. This idea of evolutionary adaptation in life is a very ancient one. In fact, we see some very familiar characters up here. Anaximander, as long ago as the 6th century BC, addressed the question, philosophically speaking, of what was the origin of life. Anaximander, you'll remember, was sort of an early atomist, or at least uh, proto-atomist, really. Um, He had the idea that life basically arose in water. It was a common sense observation that most living creatures are basically... Very much, you know, very much composed of water. So obviously that was an important element in their composition. The idea was that you started out with very simple forms emerging out of water. The simplest creatures live in water. The most complicated creatures we see around us live on land trees, people, horses, things like that. Whereas the creatures you see in, in, this, in the water tend to be small on average, not always, but, all, but tend to be small and relatively simple down to things like jellyfish. Remember, he grew up in a place which were on the islands, the Greek islands. He was aware of marine life. Now, he thought of them as developing from simpler to complex forms, and the idea that, that you know, if you will, that one species can come and develop from others was an idea that began to, you know, he began to play with, and other of the atomists began to play with in the 6th century B.C. But they couldn't go too far with it because they had no idea of the biochemical basis of life, had no idea of heredity beyond the most basics. Now, a contrary... Point of view comes from a person we've also seen and heard from a great deal in this class, Aristotle in the 3rd century B.C. Aristotle commented on just about everything there was to comment upon. He wrote a tremendous amount. And one of the things he wrote in his works on life was taking up the idea that put in modern language, species are fixed and unchanging. This was part of his program, kind of his anti-atomist program. He uh, He had the idea, remember, that The world was basically composed of earth, air, fire, and water. The celestial realm was composed of this fifth element, or ethereal material, that the earth was the the place of of growth, death, and decay, but the heavens were the place of unceasing change, of unceasing perfection. And so as part of that whole philosophical picture that he put together, it did not sit well with him of the idea of one species turning into another or developing into another. This sort of chain of lesser animals to more complex animals, according to the atomists, smacked too much of that atomist nonsense that materials are made of the same stuff everywhere. So he basically fixed down this idea that species are fixed and unchanging. When Aristotle's ideas were rediscovered in the Middle Ages, this got basically folded into Western European thinking as received wisdom and really wasn't questioned. And in fact, the whole question of the origin of species was left pretty much untouched between the time of Aristotle to the beginning of discussions of this in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Do the math. More than two millennia were spent not questioning the origins of life in any detail. But this, the picture began to change with the scientific revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. And the reason why the picture changed was they realized that the old notions that were coming as received knowledge from Aristotle had a whole bunch of problems. There were a whole bunch of things that Aristotle just plain got wrong. And also, as people began to understand the geology of the earth, they began to understand the geologic age of the earth and the depth of, of the earth's history. They began to look into the fossil records and they began to notice that Deep in the fossil strata, there are species there, leaving their bones behind, that do not exist in the present day. Similarly, there are no examples of modern species back in the most ancient strata. So that life today is very different than life was a very, very long time ago. How did that change occur? They were obviously seeing the change, they just didn't understand how it could work. So there's no question of the fact of change, of the mix of creatures, and the mix of different species that you saw over vast stretches of geologic time, they just didn't know how that change could possibly occur. The person who got the ball rolling was a brilliant naturalist by the name of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who lived in the late 17th, early 19th century. He started working with early ideas about heredity. Right? This is still a time when people are thinking about spontaneous uh, generation as a way in which life may work. Lamarck got the idea that by looking at the combination of of information that was beginning to be accrued, that life could basically change because living creatures could pass on traits to their offspring. And so if the parents were subjected to certain environmental stresses, they acquire traits during their lifetime, that however they then construct the material that they pass on as heredity to their offspring... That will carry through. So, for example, to give a a very cartoonish view of a Lamarckian mechanism, if your parents move into a very cold place and they slowly but surely get more hairy over time, sort of as in response to the cold, their children will be furrier. Well, no, it doesn't really work that way. But you can see the chain of logic behind it. Lamarck had the right idea that traits are passed down through successive generations and that it's those traits changing and emerging in the population that give rise to the change of species, but he had a completely wrong mechanism. It's inf- I say Lamarck is a brilliant naturalist, but he got a bad rap because people took the Lamarckian mechanism and tried to write it big during the early part of the 20th century, particularly in communist Russia. And in that area actually caused a sort of a counter-theory of biology, which was so completely wrong that when it was attempted to be applied, caused famines that killed a million people. So you have to be somewhat careful about how you pick your ideas sometimes. The modern mechanism by which people think evolution occurs, this change in species over time, comes to us from a man who was born 200 years ago this year. And who were celebrating his bicentennial, Charles Robert Darwin, he was probably the most famous naturalist of the nineteenth century. he lived from the years eighteen o nine to eighteen eighty two he was a natural he was a natural uh, philosopher he was basically sort of a naturalist he was a um, grew up in England, he spent his time as a, as a young man. He took, of course, the famous voyage on the HMS Beagle that took him around the world, especially down to the South America where he did his, his greatest work and began to think in the long sea voyage exactly on these problems that Lamarck and others were struggling with, of how is it that we see changes in species over geologic time, but how does that change occur? It took him a very long time between the voyage of the Beagle to the publication 150 years ago next month of his book On the Origin of Species in London in 1859. On the Origin of Species is one of the most important books ever written. It stands up with the Principia Mathematica of Newton, the Sidereus Nuncius of Galileo, and those key foundational works, in this case, of biology. It is also, I can say without reserve, the most misunderstood book, perhaps, in all of history. But that's a different topic for a different day. What I'm interested in is not the controversy surrounding natural selection or evolution. We all know that story. What I'm interested in is basically how does it work and how is it relevant to this question of what is life? The idea is that the change is not simply traits which are picked up from one parent to another through their lifetime. That mechanism doesn't work. Darwin didn't know what the mechanism of heredity was. Uh, Mendel's work, for example, on heredity was still another decade in the future when The Origin of Species was published. He did, however, make a series of observations based on both what he saw in nature and what he knew about domestication of animals and put two and two together. At the basis of every scientific revolution is actually a very simple insight. It's just sometimes you need someone to come by to you and state to you the obvious. Natural selection has been characterized by the 20th century naturalist Stephen Jay Gould as two undeniable facts and an inescapable conclusion. And they are as follows. The first fact is that any population can produce more offspring than the local population can support. Left to their own devices, bunnies will replicate to basically fill the field. This immediately leads in any population of animals to competition for resources, for food, for mates, for everything that you need to provide the stuff of life. That's fact number one, it's kind of an obvious one. It's true, anyone can see it happening. Fact number two is that individual offspring vary in their traits received from their parents. You are not exact, 50-50 mixed copies of your parents. You resemble your siblings if you have siblings, but you are not exact copies of each other. There is variation. One of your sisters may be blue-eyed, the other may be be brown-eyed. May have different hair color, different heights, different body types. But you came from the same genetic stock. You're certain of that. So why is there so much variation? And the answer is because there is always variation among any population, among, among offspring. So certainly there is a mechanism by which different offspring are slightly different from each other. And the variations can be wide or small, but there's a whole range of traits that have variability in them. Those are the two undisputable facts. The conclusion, however, is you put these two together. If you put a population under stress which has variation in its traits, if any of those traits that are part of the variability give you an advantage in that stressed environment then you are more likely to survive and reproduce and pass those favorable traits onto your offspring. The changes may be small from parent to child, but add that up over a 100 or a 1,000 generations under continued environmental stress, and you will quickly amplify those differences. This is a selection of favorable traits by the pressure on the environment, hence the term natural selection. So there's pretty clearly the fact that there is descent through modification in geologic history. Species in the past are not the same as in the present. We don't find modern species in the past. How did that change occur? And the answer was, well, genetic information, they didn't know it was genetics, but basically genetic and hereditary information is passed down. If any tweak in that information gives you a slight edge, if the pressures are right, you can amplify that edge through the system and through many, many generations build up change in the system. There are lots and lots of examples of this in fauna, big and small. If you want to see evolution in action, become a microbiologist. Most of the diversity in life is in the microbiological world in bacteria and archaea and single cell et- items. If you don't believe it, well, basically, all you have to do is look at the appearance of drug-resistant bacteria. An environmental stress has been placed upon the uh, upon bacteria by the use of antibiotics. Some small fraction of that population of bacteria are resistant to those antibiotics. So you kill the ones that you will kill. The ones that survive and reproduce are resistant to it. It doesn't take very many hundred generations before you end up with a version of tuberculosis that cannot be treated by any uh, antibiotic we can make at least not until we make a new one because we've amplified a trait through a population through many hundreds or thousands of generations In larger animals it's a lot more subtle This is a beautiful rendering of one of the key insights that Darwin got on his voyage of the Beagle when he visited the Galapagos Islands The different Galapagos Islands have a large number of different finches Birds, who cares about birds Birds are boring, right? But they're all finches, but they were all different. For example, the seed eaters had great big seed-crushing beaks. The next island over, they might have a sharp beak. A couple islands over, there really aren't a lot of seeds, but there's an awful lot of cactus flower eaters. And they have a different kind of beak, which can get inside the cactus flowers. There are those that eat buds and only eat vegetables, don't actually eat insects at all. Then there are those that are purely insect eaters, and depending upon whether they live in medium-sized trees, whether they wrap on the trees as a woodpecker or otherwise, there were great variations from island to island, and yet they all superficially resembled each other. They were all finches. They were all identifiable as finches, different sizes but different beak shapes, different changes in them, to adapt to the sources of food that were in their environments. Those whose genetic variation allowed them to exploit the local food sources, they could feed and thrive and reproduce. Those whose beaks weren't strong enough to crack open the hard seeds were going to starve to death and they weren't going to survive to reproduce. Keep this going for a few hundred generations and all of a sudden you get completely different finches well adapted to their local environments. Now, the, this is, these Galapagos Islands are way the heck out in the Pacific. They're further than any finch could fly. The finches don't have a very long range. These are thousands of miles. These are hundreds of miles out into the Pacific Ocean. So maybe a couple of ancestral finches, which from the South American mainland, which superficially resemble the finches on the Galapagos, maybe they got blown out there by a storm. It only took one pair or two to be able to seed the population. But then they're isolated, they can't mix back into the population of South America, and they began to evolve separately within these niches, within these environmental niches, and they adapted. And this Darwin, having long hours to look over all the different finches he collected in their environments, began to put the pieces together. Here was an example writ large where nature, if you will, had run the experiment for us in a very isolated environment. It's tough to see in big populations where those populations are constantly mixing. Now, it turns out that we know this effect of selection because we've been doing it ourselves artificially as human beings for thousands of years. It's called domestication. Here's an example. It's a beautiful example drawn from your book. Wild mustard is endemic all over Western Europe. And in fact, it's now endemic here in in, in North America as well. You could basically pick wild mustard and say, well, you know, I really like those wild mustards with unusually big leaves. I'm going to collect those and save the seeds because I want more big leaf mustard next year. You keep doing that, eventually you transform wild mustard into kale. That's what kale is. It's a member of the mustard, basically it's a relative of mustard. It's just been selected by human beings who like big leafed mustard over many hundreds or thousand years to develop into kale. Other people liked the stems. There were some mustards which had big fat stems and they were tasty and spicy and they kind of yummy if you boiled them up, if you like that kind of thing. So they began to pick those and save their seeds and just grow those and when the ones without the big stems came out they would pull them up. They were putting artificial selection of which offspring were going to survive and so eventually turned the wild mustard into kohlrabi. Broccoli, they might have liked these funny big green flowers. So they selected those that had big green flowers, propagated those, and killed off the rest. And you get broccoli. Those people that didn't like green flowers like white flowers. You ended up with cauliflower. In fact, if you like those where the terminal buds tend to wrap up into a nice tasty ball, you could actually, by picking one one particular way of selecting out the ones that survived, you ended up with Brussels sprouts. The other way, it's all root bud and leaf. You got cabbage. Every single one of these familiar garden vegetables were not, did not naturally arise. These are all created, if you will, or at least they're certainly selected for by human beings through, through uh, nat- artificial selection. The environment, nature if you want to call it that, did not select these because there was no reason for mustard to want to turn into kale. It was human beings putting pressure on the population year after year, century after century, dividing up and causing, if you will, a speciation. So we can do this. We know that they work on analogous principles to natural natural selection. The thing is, natural selection just needs a lot of time. So the basis of evolution in living organisms is genetic. When we come down to the modern age, the things Darwin didn't know, it's all genetics, because genetics is what basically carries the heritable traits. And there are two opposing factors at work. The first of these are those processes that are responsible for introducing genetic variation to within organisms and populations, but it's within populations that matter. And this is gene mutations, random changes in the genes that cause changes from one individual to another, or transfer of genes between populations and species. Again, I can't go into these in detail, but they're the basic mechanisms. The second piece are the processes that favor or disfavor survival of these variations when they emerge. Natural selection, which is the one that Darwin came up with, is only one mechanism. The other one is called genetic drift. These are processes that change how frequently those variations in the genetic traits appear within a population. If something happens in the genetic makeup, to cause a particular variation to become more common or less common. And so this is the basis of life. The six characteristics are a living organism is something that can reproduce and adapt to evolve into its environment. See you all tomorrow.